that's still something you probably have to preserve if you want to have a group of 30 students work through together. If it becomes completely self-paced, like traditional MOOC, then you, obviously you really can't have 30 students working together. They're all different places. If you want them to do stuff like discussion, they have to be together. You can't have 10 different discussions going at once. So I'd say there's kind of model, that freedom within constraints model, I think is, is really probably the best one for a group of students in a class. The Digital to Learn podcast is dedicated to exploring both what's new and what's good in the use of technology in teaching and learning. Our mission is to have the best minds sitting in front of our microphones, sharing evidence-based strategies for digital teaching and learning. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Thank you for joining us. And now, the Digital to Learn podcast. Welcome to the Digital to Learn podcast. I'm Tiffany Snyder, and I'm here with my co-host, Brad Garner. Hey, Brad. Hey, glad to be here. You know, a few years ago when I was working on my dissertation, the topic changed drastically in the first few weeks, and I settled on feedback as the avenue that I wanted to go with, feedback in online education primarily, but just higher ed in general. And Brad, you told me that there's one name that I need to know that I need to start with when I go searching in the journal articles, and that name was John Orlando. And what's so neat is that's who's joining us on the podcast today. I had no idea back then reading that first article that I'd be talking to John on this podcast. John Orlando is the editor of the Online Classroom Newsletter. He has a unique vantage point on the world of online teaching and learning. And this is his second time on our show. It's great to have you back, John. Well, thank you very much for having me back. And I can't believe I actually get to talk to Tiffany Snyder, the one person, the person who is epitomizes <laughs> podcasting. I just want you to know that. And if I could write a dissertation on anyone, it would be on you. Yes, I just want you to know. Well, hey, thank you. What's funny is, you know, the video that we have on right now, as we record this, we can actually see each other. That's not going to go live so long as I can help it. But if you could see me smiling, beaming from across the screen right now, it'd be pretty comical. Tiffany, you need to know, before you came on, John said exactly the same thing to me. I'm sure he did. <laughs> <laughs> it's a standard opening I use with everybody. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we have had the opportunity to talk to you very early on in our podcast. I think we started, oh goodness, was it two years ago now? I think we had the podcast and he was definitely in the, in the first 10 episodes, but we're going to get reacquainted with some just kind of off the wall or random questions. And I'll go first. If you could go anywhere in the world, where would that be? Well, that would be Iceland. And anyone who has ever been to Iceland will tell you it is another world, that there's basically Aww. two worlds. There's Iceland and everywhere else. And you almost just have to be there, but it's almost like a lunar landscape. It's, it's really interesting. The whole country is actually on the shoreline, basically. And 90% of the interior of the country is this giant uninhabited park that you can only get into on special vehicles but people have waterfalls in their backyards and the whole country is volcanic. They actually have a live stream of earthquakes and volcanoes. There's a special channel that you can check in on in the earthquake volcano action. It's just gorgeous. You just have to be there. So we love going, my wife and I go oh, wow. to hike, to bike a little bit. It's just gorgeous, pretty expensive, unfortunately, but just gorgeous. I would recommend it to anyone who wants to go somewhere new. 
Is there a certain time of year? Or you does know, it not really matter? Yeah, it kind of doesn't because Iceland's sort of unique because it's this little island in the Atlantic. Its environment, its weather is just kind of always 60s, 50s, mm. a little chilly and windy. So it's funny, they have beautiful beaches. And I've actually seen people on a beach in a bathing suit, but we were there <laughs> July and there was not a single day where you could be in the bathing suit. So keep in mind, actually, because they're so far up, in the summer, the sun almost never sets. They're right on the border of the Arctic Circle. So in the, it's, it's really interesting. In the summer at 10 p.m., it's like noon, and people, they, oh they tell you to bring little eye covers so you can sleep. But at obviously, the opposite's in the winter. In the winter, the sun almost never rises. So that would be the main consideration. If you probably want to go there sometime where you get a little sun, that would be the only thing. Dress warm, but just gorgeous, just absolutely beautiful. So is there ice in Iceland? You know, it's funny. You go to Iceland and when you land, you look around, it's green. And then you hear Greenland's all full of ice. And (laughs) in the story people tell, and I've been told this may or may not be true, but when they discovered Iceland and Greenland, they realized that people would want to go to Iceland, not Greenland. So they named Iceland Iceland, even though it was almost all green, and Greenland, even though it was almost all ice, to throw off the invaders. So when the Vikings settled it, they decided to switch the name so people would invade the wrong spot. So, so but there are giant glaciers. Actually, what happens is interesting because it's the most volcanic, geologically active spot in the world. But because there are still a lot of glaciers, many of the volcanoes erupt under glaciers, and it causes glacial tsunamis. Never heard that word, but there is such a thing. When your volcano goes underneath their glacier, obviously it melts the glacier and they have glacial tsunamis. So that's actually the big danger there are the glacial tsunamis coming down. They had a famous one in the 70s. Actually, their main volcanoes are overdue. So they actually have volcano sirens all over the country. So when you hear a siren, the idea is you just run like hell. (laughs) That's the general idea. (laughs) In fact, fact, there's a sign on one of the hikes, there's a sign that says, when this volcano is about to erupt, you'll get about half hour warning with minor tremors. So if you feel any minor tremors, head for the hills, just run. (laughs) Sounds like we need to train before we go there then. I think you just made a great pitch for going to Iceland. It sounds like a exciting place to visit. (laughs) Exactly. And the amazing thing is they have their own language and I I tried my best to learn it. It's a very difficult language. Very, very difficult. The letters aren't pronounced at all like we would pronounce letters. So Mm -hmm. I get there and I find out they speak English better than I do. I mean, everyone (laughs) I met speaks flawless English and I mean flawless English. So anyways, it's very easy to get around because of that. That is excellent. So, John, you do lots of different things, but if you could pick one job that you would love to do, what would that be? You know, it would be fixed bicycles because I'm a big into biking. I've biked 200 mile rides from uh, like one day rides from Canada to Massachusetts across Vermont. And my wife and I got married on a hundred mile bike ride at the first water stop. A, a couple of years ago, me and a bunch of guys in my bike club took a bike maintenance class 
And we're all kind of middle-class guys, you know, we make middle-class money. Some are actually upper-class, you know, they're lawyers and stuff. And by the end of the class, we're all ready to quit our jobs and just like <laughs> mechanics. Without, you know, I sit there all day long, you know, writing legal stuff. I just want to clean bikes, you know? I mean, and, and, you know, people, guys are talking to the mechanics. Okay, so what if I just volunteer to work here? Would you accept that? <laughs> so it's funny because as academics, we spend all our time in front of computers, literally typing on keyboards. Yeah. There's a part of you that just wants to use your hands and be able to say at the end of the day, I made a difference. I took a dirty bike and I cleaned it. The shifting didn't work and now it works. And sometimes we just answering emails and writing articles, you kind of wonder, where do you see the difference you make? It can be a little difficult. So yeah, something that can work with my hands. So would owning a bicycle maintenance shop be a sustainable business these days? <laughs> yeah, barely sustainable. I would definitely have to make sure I have some retirement funds. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you know what's become big in Vermont is winter biking, what they call snow bikes. And they have super fat tires. They're almost as wide as motorcycle tires. And you literally bike across the snow. So it's become wow. huge. It's become very big. I have a snow bike. We found a way to bike all year round. That's incredible. Yeah. yeah. All right, let's move on to the hard stuff. One of our rules of, of this podcast, and that is that whatever we say may or may not be true. So uh, uh-huh. th- thank you for being part of that culture. Yeah, well, what we can expect with a free podcast. If they want <laughs> something that's guaranteed to be true, they have to pay, right? That's exactly- oh, that's wonderful, yeah. <laughs> So you get a chance to edit the online teaching publication. Sure, have contact and conversations with lots of faculty and other folks. What are some of the emerging trends in online teaching and learning? Well, one that I really like is modulized content with interactions. Now, when online learning first emerged, I think what happened is we took the face-to-face model and just translated it online. So when you think about the face-to-face teaching model, you're given certain class periods to fill up, like three 50-minute periods a week or even one three-hour period. So think in terms of big blocks, like this 50-minute class, I'm going to lecture on this, and that 50-minute class, I'll lecture on that. And every few weeks, I'll give them an exam where I'll measure how much they caught. And when online learning came along, we kind of just did the same thing online. I made the huge mistake of just typing out my oral lectures into 10, 15 page documents and just giving them to students back in the late 1990s. And, you know, somehow they read through them. Don't ask me how. But we're still just thinking in terms of these large block lectures. Well, MOOCs came along and they taught us how to teach online because they were developed outside of academia, outside of the assumptions of academia from the understanding of the neurology of learning. And the neurology of learning tells us large blocks of lectures don't work well for learning because your working memory can only hold four or five discrete items. And in order to retain that, you have to move the items to long-term memory. And that requires you to stop and reflect on them. Just like if you want to memorize a a phone number, what do you do? You kind of repeat it a few times or something like that. So what happens is if you get a sixth block of information, it just has to kick one of the air blocks out of your working memory. Working memory isn't preserved. It's like RAM on a computer. So 
the lecture, which is just kind of feed you new information, is kind of like putting luggage on a conveyor belt on one end to watch it flop off on another end, which I actually saw once mm-hmm. in the airport. It's kind of funny. But anyway, what the MOOCs did, they broke those into small pieces. So MOOCs are designed so that you do relatively small lectures, like uh, five, 10 minute videos. And then like at Coursera, you can put questions right in the videos that pause the video and force the student to answer. And that forces the interaction that moves the information from working memory to long-term memory. Uh, MOOCs taught us that. And like very famous MOOC class, Coursera's Learning How to Learn was probably the one that really kind of showed everyone how to do that. And we're starting to see that now moved into traditional online learning. It's gradually moving in. Unfortunately, in online learning, it's still traditional faculty who are thinking in traditional model. But I think they're being pushed now to not just load students with tons of content and then have your 10, 20 question quiz at the end of the week, but to have a short piece of content like a video followed by one or two questions or an interaction. And now using systems like H5P, You can kind of do interesting interactions where they have to move a box from one spot to another to drop into an answer, you know, match these concepts with their definitions or, you know, pick the parts of the body where the digestive system operates or something like that. So we're able to do now that modularized content. We're seeing that now with interactions that better match the neurology of learning. So that's moving itself into online education slowly but surely. I hope it keeps going. I hope it accelerates. To some extent, the learning management system itself has to be redesigned a little Mm -hmm. bit. The design of MOOCs encouraged modularized learning with interactions. The fundamental designs of the big learning management system still don't encourage that. They're kind of designed on the old model. But faculty are moving in that direction. So that's the big thing I think is really helpful. Let me ask you a question about that. For what you described, quizzes, the H5P things, the interactions you've described are mostly virtual. Yeah. What extent are faculty embedding themselves into those modules for live interactions? Yeah, that's a good point. We're Obviously, we've kind of heard this a thousand times, but when COVID came along, faculty switched to what's called emergency remote lecturing, where they literally just lectured online. So, and a lot of people were saying, rightly, that we're hoping all these faculty who have never taught online don't think this is what online teaching is, just lecturing in front of Zoom web platform, because everyone hates it, and they should. But... What certainly the right way to use it is to have these one hour web conferencing uh, meetings where it's not about lecturing, it's about some kind of interaction with the students. So that could be getting them into groups, solving problems and coming together to give their answers. It could be presentations, could be things like that. So that's definitely the right way to use live conferencing, not for a way to lecture. If you're just going to lecture for 50 minutes, videotape yourself, cut it into 10 pieces and put a question after each and let them watch it at their own leisure over a latte. But live events should be designed for interaction, ways the students can do things. And that's definitely the best use of those. When you think about these modules, are they 
largely self-paced then in terms of the level that they complete those? Somewhat, you know, traditional online learning still follows the traditional classroom model where you have a certain amount of content you have to cover by the end of the week. So you have freedom to decide when in the week you'll do it, although usually you kind of expect them to do it in the first couple of days. So you could do it morning, noon, or night, but you do have to get done within those few days of the week. So there's a freedom within constraints. And I think that's still something we probably have to preserve if you want to have a group of 30 students work through together. If it becomes completely self-paced, like traditional MOOC, then you, obviously you really can't have 30 students working together. They're all different places. If you want them to do stuff like discussion, they have to be together. You can't have 10 different discussions going at once. So I'd say there's kind of model, that freedom within constraints model, I think is, is really probably the best one for a group of students in a class. I love that phrase, freedom within constraints. That's mm-hmm. catchy. <laughs> I was just thinking, you know, usually uh, in the podcast or just in conversation, I feel like Brad and I are typically talking in a way that would push faculty or say, why not? You know, why can't they be uncomfortable for a while to try new things? Why? But then when I hear you, I do have empathy for them and realizing how much that role does change, how much it becomes less about lecturing something that they're used to versus building connections with students. Not that they weren't connected with students before, but this is different. Now you're in a virtual room, potentially on Zoom, and it's about bringing out your students and conversing with them and connecting with them through, it could be small talk to open things up, or it's just different. Or being on video. Uh, Many faculty aren't used to seeing themselves when they're lecturing, but now all of a sudden they see themselves (laughs) connecting with students live on a screen. So there is a shift that takes place that might even be a bit personal and social, just different. And it is hard because as faculty, now I was grad student back in the late middle ages, we were taught to lecture. And even though the traditional teaching assistant, you get assigned these discussion groups that you're supposed to lead, we were really not taught how to let discussion. You know, we get into a group of, of 10 freshman students staring it in the face, and <laughs> we really didn't know what to say, what to do. So one of my teachers said it's much easier to fall into lecturing than leading discussion. Leading discussion is hard. You have to think on your feet. You have to react to what people are saying. It's much mm-hmm. easier to get up there and almost unwind your mental tape recorder yeah. in a 15-minute lecture, which I've literally seen faculty who are like mental tape recorders. They literally could just talk for 50 minutes. Someone asked them a question. They just rewind back three minutes and just <laughs> They said maybe in different words. Yeah. And that was the model of a teacher I was taught, the lecturer, the one who could be a mental tape recorder. And it's very, very hard to turn that around and act like you're sitting in a cafe with 10 people trying to lead a discussion. Mm -hmm. That's very, very difficult to do. And you're absolutely right. And because of that, they fall back into what they know. Absolutely. Mm So a couple of other things I was going to mention that are emerging trends that they're mm-hmm. just just starting to emerge, not getting the much traction, but there's a lot of talk about it, is virtual reality. Now, we're still at the phase where I think there's more talk than action. There is some people doing things, but the problem I've seen, I've seen this at conferences, there'll be a keynote speaker who will get up there and put on his $600 Oculus 
and they'll show a video of what he sees in it. And, you know, he'll be in a room or something. Maybe they'll even put a game on and people in the audience will literally have two thoughts. One is I'm getting dizzy and two, (laughs) how in the world am I going to do this? I can't buy a $600 Oculus for every student. I can't expect them, all of them to have it. And these are games. Well, I think that the problem is that there actually are other ways to do virtual reality. Google has cardboard cameras for $10 that can turn your phone into a virtual reality phone. And now all YouTube videos that were originally filmed in virtual reality will play in virtual reality on YouTube. It's actually a setting. And there are many, many excellent, excellent resources of educational material, BBC, Discovery Channel, National Geographic, New York Times, others have produced wonderful documentaries that can take you to different places in the world. Actually, NASA has one that takes you to different planets in our solar system. And all you need is a 10 dollar Google camera and your own cell phone, which that you can pretty much expect students will have. And there's the contents already out there. There's hundreds, maybe even thousands of pieces of content out there. So I encourage faculty to do that first, to look at the content that's out there first. Now, then you can build on it. I can see assignments, let's imagine geology assignment or something where a faculty member says to students, take your cell phone and film a 360 video of a geological formation and then explain how it represents something we've studied. And then there, you can upload that and the teacher can see it and other students can see it. That's something where they don't mm. have to buy the expensive 360 camera. It won't be quite obviously as good as what you get with a more expensive 360 camera, but it'll be good enough. And then they can share it. Same with augmented reality. You can use various software to do something like a gentleman in Australia. For some reason, they're way ahead of us in Australia on augmented <laughs> reality. I'm not sure why. But anyways, he had students build a virtual tour of their city. And what they would do is they would take old photos of the city and then superimpose them on buildings. What would happen is if you log in correctly and you can do this through Google's street view, you can physically get to the location you're standing in, put up your camera, and then you can superimpose the old view of the building from a hundred years ago or what was there a hundred years ago that got torn down and compare it to what's there now. That's the kind of Mm -hmm. augmented reality where it will superimpose some old view into the new view. And you can do that with your own cell phones. So those are the kinds of more real world uses. It seems there are a few people who are doing it. It hasn't gained a lot of traction because again, unfortunately at conferences, I think they're still thinking in terms of the Oculus and gaming, but I think that's something that we could do a lot more with. Um, And finally, the, The third one people are talking a lot about, they're experimenting is adaptive learning. And adaptive learning makes perfect sense in that if I wanna teach someone carpentry and they already know how to use a hammer, then maybe I shouldn't waste time teaching them how to use a hammer. I should go work on the tool they don't know how to use, a screwdriver. Makes perfect sense. The problem is that in implementing it, it becomes difficult Mm -hmm. because Usually when you're doing an academic lesson, you have to kind of guide them through a topic where step one leads to step two, leads to step three, leads to step four. 
And when we've tried, when they've tried to do this, where they give them, say, a couple questions, and if they answer questions right, they don't have to do step one, they can advance to step two. Oftentimes, there's still some information missing on that they're not getting. Mm -hmm. They really need to put step two into context. So they kind of lose the context and the coherence of the lesson. That's the challenge. I've seen that. I've seen publishers work on stuff and it's really a mess and they admit it's a mess. I've been involved in reviewing something and I even said <laughs> you know, to a publisher, kind of a mess. And I hope you're not offended. They said, no, everyone else says it's a mess too. We understand. <laughs> so that's the challenge. So I think adaptive learning makes perfect sense. I think we can eventually get to a place we're doing it, but it's, it's difficult and it's going to require a lot of thought about how do you maintain coherence of the learning experience while at the same time selectively feeding students information. I think that's the challenge. So what's the pace of adoption on some of these things? Yeah, I think very slow from what I can tell. I mean, you go to conferences, there's usually one or two speakers that are from a university who have tried something like this. And so there are a few universities, but if you go to the average university, it might be if they have a hundred faculty members, maybe one person has tried it. So mm -hmm. I think it's slow. I think it hasn't gained a lot of traction. It's a car that's mostly spinning on ice. Every once in a while <laughs> hits a dry spot and lurches forward. But I think it's slow. And uh, again, maybe it's just a lot of it is training that you know, mm -hmm. faculty to be trained in what are the possibilities and how to use it. So as you look at that slow pace, is that caused mostly by technological and financial constraints or psychological constraints on the part of faculty? I think really it's mostly psychological constraints because I don't think there has to be financial and technological constraints on mm -hmm. the simplified uses of virtual reality, augmented reality that can run out of a smartphone. I really don't think there has to be. In fact, even the real 360 camera, which literally shoots in all directions at once, they're down to $100 at Best Buy. So even that isn't that expensive. So I think it's mostly thinking about how to use mm -hmm. it you know, in your class. So I, th I think that's the big thing versus the technology. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you for joining us on Digital to Learn. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are three things we ask you to do. One, come back and join us again. Two, tell your friends about us. And three, give us a positive ranking on your favorite podcast platform. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Embrace the future. Always keep learning.